Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 79. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com and my co-host is Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. This episode was recorded on the 17th of November with Dominic Frisby. He's a British author, a comedian and a voice actor. He's known for his highly entertaining writing style, having penned Bitcoin, The Future of Money, Life After the State and his most recent book, Daylight Robbery, How Taxes Shaped Our Past and Will Change Our Future. There is strong language in this episode, so user discretion is required. Enjoy the show. So, Dominic, how was um, the Edinburgh Fringe? I heard it was excellent from Tim. Well, it was pretty good. Um, I It was just so much work uh, um, because the, the, the economics of Edinburgh are such that in order to make any money, you need to be in a room that has at least 100 seats and be selling that out. Otherwise, just with all the various expenses, it's very hard to make any money. And there was a room that I was in last year that I wanted this year. And for some reason, the Gilded Balloon wouldn't give it give it to me. And so I, I sort of had a uh, – uh, they offered me a room that was 65 seats, which I didn't want. So I went and did the free fringe, which is sort of very good fun, but I only had like a room that only seated about 50 people. And so in order to make the thing worthwhile financially, I, I, I did loads of different shows and I ended up doing four different shows at one point. And it was just uh, exhausting doing so many shows. Um, but at least, you know, at least I came out of it with a little bit of money. Yeah. Not a lot, but a little bit. Yeah. I can but ima- presumably by the, by the end of that run, you're just coasting on fumes, I would imagine. Oh, I was just, I was just exhausted. But, um, but it sort of hardens you and, um, but it meant that I wrote two shows that I probably would not have got around to doing. They weren't like, um, you know, one was a lecture about the economics of the Edinburgh Festival and the other was a uh, a, a beatbox, uh, not a beatbox, a, a sci-fi rock drama. <laughs> <laughs> as, <laughs> and, as you do. Yeah, well, me and a guitarist and I've got I've got high hopes for this show, you know, on Audible and stuff. So, um, oh, great. Oh, so it's so, out there, is it? We can link well, to it. Well, no, it, it, the, uh, it, we, they could be out there were the guitarist not such a perfectionist. Ah. And uh, he keeps wanting to redo the guitar bits. So um, it will be out there. Don't worry, I'll, I'll, I, I, I will be um, pimping it on social media when it, is come, when it does come out. I look forward to that. Is this like a kind of Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds thing? It's exactly what that, you've nailed it. I'm, I'm, we've copied the uh, format of Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds, and I'm Richard Burton, and my friend is Jeff. Broadsword calling Danny Boy. Yeah, all that. <laughs> and, uh, but it's a sci-fi drama all about invisibility. And it's set sort of five years into the future. And it's, it's a sort of metaphor for Bitcoin. This could work really well on radio. Oh, it should do. It will do. It's great. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, oh, I see. I see what you're saying. Um, but, well, we have the music. There's a sort of invisibility theme that he plays whenever there are invisibility people in, in, invisible people in the room. But the, the idea is, is that this renegade group of optical physicists have invented um, cloaks of invisibility to protect against government and corporate surveillance. And, um, you know, that's a metaphor for the internet, really, at the moment. We, but- we, like, we like this already. We like this already. Have you, have you seen um, John Carpenter's film, They Live? I love it. At the indie level, at the indie scale, it's an absolute belter. Oh, no, I've oh, not I, seen it. I'll have to oh, I'll write it best. down now. It is the best. So, so Paul, the pre- sorry to interrupt Dominic, Dominic's flow. The, the, to, to, the, the, 
the premise of They Live is that a, a guy who's basically an everyman figure played by Rowdy Roddy Piper, who's a, a wrestler in this, uh, I would say professional, but I'm not sure you could call it professional wrestling, but it, he's, he's a sort of a wrestler in the States and not really an actor, but he, he carries this off fine as far as I'm concerned. Anyhow, so he's a loner. He's, he's out of work and he stumbles on um, a box full of dark glasses, sort of cheap sort of black sunglasses, and he puts one on. And then the moment that he puts these these glasses on, or, or everything you see about modern life, things like posters, media, magazines, it, without the glasses, you just see like, you know, Vanity Fair or, you know, you know whatever. And then you put the glasses on, it says things like, money is your God and sleep oh, and wow. obey. So it's like cuts through all this, this sort of basically, it, what turns out to be alien propaganda. So it's like a kind of, it's a very, uh, it's, it's a kind of very left, left-wing perspective on Reaganism, I guess is probably the way to describe it. So was but this 80s? Was funny. this 80s or? This is, this is uh, late 80s, wow. late 80s, like 80, 88 or 89. You put the glasses on and you see the world as it really is. Oh, brilliant. And and uh, uh, alien colonists have been colonising the, the, the world. Well, the, the thing I like best about it is that um, there was one character who couldn't understand why he was not being very successful in his job because he was working hard and he was doing everything right. And, of course, all the best jobs get given to the alien colonists. <laughs> and... Uh, and you, you're when you wear these glasses, you're able to see who's an alien and who's a, a genuine human. Oh, I can't wait to see it. That sounds brilliant. And the, what, yeah, one of it's there's two there's two really iconic um, scenes. One is an extended fight sequence that goes on for what seems like eternity. I think it's with, the longest, or it was the longest <laughs> single fight in any film ever. And it's it's, it's like bizarre. <laughs> it's just so bizarre. It's, it's sort it's, of pointless it, as well, isn't it? It's sort of point, doesn't really go in. Pointless. It's like a drum solo at a gig. But is it like a, yeah, he's exactly like a drum solo. Is it Keith David? I think it's the actor who's who's also be, he was in um I think he was in the thing, which is arguably John Carpenter's finest hour. Was that the black guy? There was a white guy in the, the black. black guy in that. He's also the black guy. He was in the thing. Either way, it's it's you have to see it to believe it. So it's got a it's it's got a perfectly gratuitous like ten minute long fight <laughs> sequence, which is just you know a, a surreal. And the other the other sequence, and apparently this was ad libbed. There's a sequence where Roddy Piper, who's basically the hero, goes into a bank and he's got a double barrel shotgun with him. And he goes into the bank and everyone starts to go, oh, what's going on here? He goes, he says, I've come here to 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 chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. <laughs> <laughs> and apparently he had lived it. It wasn't even in the script. So fair play to the late and much lamented Rowdy Roddy Piper for that. Oh, that's a great line. <laughs> I forgot that one. Anyway, so back back to back to War of the Worlds and the invisibility uh, story. Well, yeah, I mean, um, w- well, we'll see. I mean, I, I it, well, we won't, we won't see. Well, we won't see. Yeah, <laughs> but um, it's now not looking like we'll have it out before Christmas. But 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 I'd like to if we could. Did you get many requests for your seventeen million fuck offs? There were a lot of people who came specifically to see me and when we played that song, would sing along. Brilliant. That must, that must have been good. <laughs> Actually, it would, be, it would be useful for the, for the Ben. I mean, I, I say this you know, with all the best intentions. As a value investor, there's a lot of digital stuff that's a little tricky for us to invest in at the moment. But if you, if you wouldn't mind, if you could just get, talk through the, the logistics of, of how 17 million fuck-offs came to being. Because it, it, it's a transformational learning experience about the power of uh, the power of the digital economy. Well, um, 
it, it came into being because, um, I, I mean, if you want to go right back to the beginning, I always used to write, um, like, like writing comic songs and comic poems and comic raps and things. And, but one of the frustrations of doing them with a backing track was that when you were on stage with the backing track, you were locked into the backing track. And if something happened in the room or maybe somebody was laughing more than usual or less than usual, you didn't have the flexibility to sort of, um, you know, speed up or slow down. You were tied into the backing track. So I started learning the ukulele as uh, as a mean because I, I heard that the ukulele was was an easy instrument to learn. And I had this ukulele teacher who uh, the, the bloke in the ukulele shop recommended and it, he was this very, he had a little sort of pencil moustache and, and, and um, I can't say his name and he, he, he would turn up, turn up in a sort of tweed jacket and you'd play absolutely appallingly and he'd listen very respectfully and give you some suggestions. <laughs> <laughs> like give it up. <laughs> Don't give up the day job. Then I met him at this part, I am to bump into him at this party and um, he's there, he was there with his wife and his wife got really pissed and uh, she's a teacher in a secondary school. And she was going to him, Martin, you're not strict enough with your pupils. Look at me. I'm really strict. And, and, and Martin just really calmly replied, yes, dear, but you don't need to get booked again. Yes. And, and I remember thinking, wow, do I have a libertarian here on my uh, thing who understands the difference in, in dynamics between, you know, the state employer and the thing? I just got a real whiff of it. Yeah. So we'd brilliant. have these lessons. And I'd sort of casually pass, you know, um, political remarks and things. And I just discovered that this ukulele teacher was the most militant libertarian you would ever, <laughs> you would ever discover. But he just keeps his politics to himself. And the other thing I discovered is that he's one of the best guitarists in the country, like seriously brilliant. And but like, you know, he works in the music business and the music business is a cruel business. And some oh, people yeah. get luckier than others. Anyway, so um, I started going, I've got this idea for this song. And we'd sort of, in the, in, rather than do the ukulele lesson, I, we, it, they became, um, like I'd, I'd say, I've got these words. Can you put some music to these words? And, um, and we'd start writing these songs. And we did a couple of them. And um, they were pretty good. This is a couple of, couple of three years ago. One was that I'm secretly in love with Nigel Farage, which actually came first um, <laughs> uh, a few years ago. And, and the, can, 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 we, can we have the best rhyme in history? For the, the, just the line, the Nigel Farage rhyming? No. I want to spend some time with Nigel Farage and maybe give him a full body massage. <laughs> 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 so anyway so and it was literally there was this um comedy club called comedy unleashed and they they tried to open a night in in reading um and and i was on the bill and so we wrote this song on the monday and i said i've got this idea that you know there was all this um you know the they, they said you're gonna uh you know, it's going to be a cost. The cost of Brexit is going to be four thousand three hundred pounds to every home, and then I've got this idea that the English just went, "Oh fuck off!" And then they've got the the idea that, that you know there's going to be all the things that and 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 every and each time the answer was "fuck off," and then Martin said, "Oh, well, you that sounds a bit like um, Uncle Tom Cobbley, which is an old English, an old Devon folk song." 
And uh, so we, we kind of wrote it together and we did the first bit. It's Whittacombe Whittic- Fair, isn't it? Whittacombe Fair. Fair, exactly. Yeah. And so we wrote the first bit, which was just sort of a load of, of notes. And I used to sing in the choir at school. So I've got, I'm quite good at sort of chorally kind of stuff. And you've also got quite a good range, haven't you? Not really. It's I've got quite. I can go quite deep, quite low, but but high. I mean, I I don't know. I don't really know. I'm not a singer. But but anyway, so au contraire, Blackadder. Well, okay, you're very kind, but the they have to um, auto tune me sometimes, Liz. (laughs) But anyway, (laughs) anyway, so we I we wrote the song in the lesson, and I went and did it um, at this comedy club in on. um, in Reading on the Tuesday night. So we wrote the song on the Monday, went and did it in this comedy club on the Tuesday. And this bloke came up to me and I, I did it. I threw it in and there was a load of tried and tested stuff. And then I threw that song in and this bloke just came up to me and said, that song's brilliant. It made me feel so proud, so patriotic. And I, and I sort of, he was so enthusiastic about it. This bloke, I thought, wow, I'm onto something here. And then the following day, the Wednesday, me and Martin, um, went, to his mate who's got a sound studio up in North London um, in uh, Archway. And his, I say a sound studio, it's just his front room. And um, <laughs> it was <laughs> and it was really funny because his mate, uh, this guy, Wayne, who I, I just love, he's a brilliant engineer. But uh, Martin, would, Martin bought about four or five different guitars to this sound section. And Martin would just play all these different guitars and blend them all together. And this guy, Wayne, would just sit there staring at the computer, just going, oh, why is he doing that? Oh, I don't understand that. And he just sort of would be in his own little world moaning at the computer while me and Martin were playing these songs. <laughs> but then, anyway, so then he, like a day later, he sent the um, the song back. And then I played it to another friend of mine who's a... Um, uh, director and he said we've got to make a video of this so this was literally the thursday and we met at um on parliament square to make this to make this video and it was like three o'clock and it was it was in mid to late march just just before so there was a big rush to get it out before march the 31st mm. you know because that's when we were supposed to leave and um we, we said for the first bit, the first bit's got a church organ so we need to find a church organ and and me be singing it next to church organ so we 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 aimed at the top and we went into Westminster Abbey. <laughs> <laughs> and they wouldn't let us um do it. And then we went over the road and tried to do it in um it's is it called the the something hall? Not the Mercer's Hall. There's a big um beautiful hall just opposite Westminster Abbey. Anyway, we went in there and they said no as well. And we were wandering around looking for church. And then I was literally Googled church near me. And we found a (laughs) church about three blocks up. And I went and knocked on the door and and the janitor uh, opened the door. And I said, look, we're making this folk video. And... um, uh, you know, we just need to to to, to get a sh- well f- f- folk off folk off video. Well, yeah, <laughs> and we just need to get a uh, um a shot of me next to a, a a church organ. And we saw on the picture outside your church, you got a beautiful church organ. And we wondered if we could just get a picture of me next to this church organ. It would only take about ten minutes. Um, and so the guy went upstairs and got the vicar, and the vicar came back downstairs, and he's a very kind of greasy, bedraggled, uh, harassed-looking man. And he said, you're making a folk video, are you? And I said, yes. And he went, what's it about? And I thought, oh, God. Um, and I thought to myself. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah. And I, I thought, oh, well, it's a man of God. I, I'm going to be honest here. And I'm not going to lie. I'm just going to be honest. And um, because that's the right thing to do. And I said, it's, and I said, it's um, 
about Brexit. And my friend was over over my shoulder. He went, no, it's about freedom. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and so the guy said, oh, it's about Brexit, is it? And remember, this is a vicar, a man of God. Which side are you on? <laughs> And I said, well, it's not, that's not really what it's, what it's, it's not a, which, no, which side, you know, which, you know who you voted. And, um, and I remember thinking, which side are you on? And I said, well, I, I voted to um, leave. And he went, we don't want your sort in here. And slammed the church, the door of the church in our face. Isn't that, isn't that ironic? It was that- incredible. So anyway, so now we're left with, we literally haven't got anything. We're left with no time. And so we walked back and we walked through um, Westminster School and, and uh, you know, because you can sort of, there are bits of it that you can walk past. And we found this little sort of arch and it, the lighting was quite interesting. And said, look, let's just film it here. So we got it. So I filmed the first bit. You know, it's got that sort of choral first bit. Yes. And then it ends with, you know, fuck off on a really low note. And um, so we filmed the first bit and um, this woman was in, a, in the office right next to the... Um, where we were singing it. <laughs> and of course we're doing it on takes. So we filmed it three or four times from different angles. Um, you know, and this woman, very nice lady came out uh, and she said, uh, you do know that you're st- singing this right outside the headmaster's office, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> and I go, uh, 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 I didn't know he didn't. And she said, well, just, you know, can you sing, sing it more quietly? Sing it more quietly. No, she was she was clearly on our side. She oh, just went, okay. "Well, just sing it, sing it a bit more discreetly, or something like that," and and let us film it. And then we literally just rushed oh, and brilliant. filmed the last bit. And anyway, so we had the thing, and we edited it the following day. And I think by the Friday, we got the video out, and we put it up. And then basically everyone ignored it. And then somebody, oh Guido, Guido Fork shared it. Right. And then that's it went bananas after that, after Guido shared it. It's really, when you're trying to get a video out there, the impact of... Um, it needs a bit of bump somehow. You need an influencer who's got a following to get, to get you know, to get the message mm. out. And then, but to, to answer your initial question, Tim, the, the, um, the economics of it were like, there was then this campaign to get the song to number one for March the 31st. and. Um, loads of people bought the single um, and it was the number one selling single on Amazon. It was, uh, it got to, I think 15 or something in the iTunes charts and it didn't actually get into the top um, 40 because of it was to do with the streams. It didn't have the streams and I hadn't linked the amount of YouTube and Facebook hits with oh, the single, no. you know, to get the streams. So that was, that was just something as basic as that. Cause it had, you know, one and a half million people watched it on Facebook and, and 600,000 on, on YouTube. But anyway, so it still did very well. But anyway, um, I earned in total from a song that was, you know, a big hit, uh, $1,300. US wow. dollars, so a thousand quid. Now, um, that that's incredible. I mean, well, I mean, I'm I'm not um, biting the hand that feeds me, but you know, if you think of the the 70s or the 80s, if you had a sort of hit novelty song that say got into the top ten or something, that would look after you for a couple of years. There'd be a six figure sum, presumably. I mean, that six. wouldn't cover the video, would it? I mean, it wouldn't cover no, I mean, half I'm, the video. I'm probably round about break even on it. Yeah, you know. So that's the, I mean, so it's very much, you do it for love, yeah. but, um, but, and, and a bit more, there's something else. There is a buzz you get when, when you do something and it goes viral. It's the same buzz when you tweet something and you get a million retweets, you know, but, um, 
yeah, but so the economics of being a, a a music guy without the backing of a big publisher and all the rest of it, it's 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 not easy. You know, I would have thought the opposite, really. I thought you would have, all the money would have gone directly to you without a middleman. So I'm quite surprised that 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 was that was all you got. From there it. is no money. It's yeah. the few people who bought the single. I'll tell you where I've made the most money is making the physical CD and selling it after gigs. But there's right. also an, there's there's also an element of brand of branding, isn't there? So there's a wider there'll be a much wider awareness of you as a result of that song. Oh yeah, presumably, yes. I think so. Yeah, uh, that's definitely true. But the the and really, I'm not you know I, I I earn a good living and I'm not moaning about money for a second. But it the if you're a guy that doesn't have about fifty four diff- different jobs like I do, mm. and you want to mm. become a musician, you know it's really hard. That the, the but then, I mean, you see all these grime artists and stuff, and some of them seem to own fortunes, but they've all got sponsorship deals and this and that. But yeah, it's it's very hard. I would have guessed you'd have made at least ten k on that, at least, and I yeah. would have guessed well, more. You know, I I would have thought, yeah, that's the sort of thing I would have thought, and and I probably have, you know, I've I've done okay from selling CDs. I've probably sold about three hundred and fifty CDs, but the the point about that is it's real. Yeah. You know, a real thing is changing hands. Whereas, you know, on the internet, you don't pay for YouTube and Spotify. You don't really pay for it. And so all these, um, oh yeah. And YouTube demonetize inappropriate content. So oh I yeah. I did wonder about that. Cause yeah. Yes. So, yeah. Cause that's why if you remember, I was asking the question on the last podcast, tongue in cheek, whether you had a clean version of it, but <clears> what <throat> that's kind of what I meant as well. If you, because I know you can't monetize anything that's, uh, that's that's you know not appropriate for over for under 16s or something on youtube yeah. so so effectively you've made nothing out of it well i think i think um because you know i only say the f word i mean that's not that bad but i think um you know somebody who's on the other side of the political argument did that thing that they always do to you know they go for your income and i think i got reported as inappropriate content or something ah, like that right yeah, you know that oh. that thing of no platforming. You they always go for you, try yeah. and get you sacked and all that. Oh, I see. But I, I guess where I'm coming from is 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 also I accept that the sort of the, the, the pound shillings and pence thing hasn't hasn't necessarily worked to everyone's advantage or to your advantage in this case. But it's 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 the proof of concept is where I guess I'm coming from. So I don't know if you're familiar with. I mean, for me, it's been one of the most intriguing and thought-provoking essays I've come across. It's, a, it's an essay by a guy called, I think it's Al, Albert J. Nock, called Isaiah's Job. But he talks about, this is, I think, from the 30s, 30s or 40s, um, but he was an Austrian uh, school a journalist and writer. And he, he said that the, the premise of this, which you can see via the, you can read it via the, the Mises website, um, is that Isaiah's out in the wilderness and he's saying, God, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm spreading the good word, but I don't think I'm getting through to anybody and I, I'm feeling a bit cheesed off. And God responds, don't, don't worry about it because most people will never listen to you anyway. They're not the people we're after. We're after what he calls the remnant, which is that part of society that will carry on after the, the deluge, after the whatever crisis occurs. And it's the remnant we're after. So it's basically the, the kind of the idea that if, if you build it, they will come, kind of so field of dreams argument, that the, the beauty of the web, or p- potentially the beauty of the web, is you, you, you put stuff out there, whether it's a blog or a piece of music or whatever it is that hopefully has some value, and then by a kind of weird, almost magical process of osmosis, people will find it and then respond to it. So I guess that's, that's kind of where I'm coming from, which is clearly can be monetized at a, 
at a broader or be it somewhat more ethereal level that you if your if your business is content if your business is ideas which it is for i think for all of us on on the on that podcast uh, now then if if it has value it will find an audience of sorts and that potentially could then ultimately be monetized yeah i mean i would agree with that i would i would agree with that in principle i'd like to read that essay but um you know like you guys do this podcast and it's very popular with its listeners but it's you know again i bet you do it more for love than for money oh for sure for sure to, to to make any money and and i know you know i know i just know you know with the example of my dad who's a writer and i just know there is in his house there is there is i can think of certainly one example but several examples of you know he had a play in the 1960s called there's a girl in my soup which at the time was the longest running comedy in the history of the west end it broke all the records it ran for 6 years and he he made an absolute fortune for it but um and I ended up having to become a tax exile to the south of france um because that was in the days of you know 95% yeah. plus taxes above a certain level um but i know he has written one play i can think of in particular a musical that is just gold and if we somehow could could you know find the money to put it on we're looking at the next oliver or the next sound of music or something like that all about his experiences as a vacuum in world war 2 and i just wonder how many bits of gold like that are you know sitting in people's desks lurking in dark corners of the internet undiscovered and there are i'm just i'm sure there are loads of them so have you heard of a book called the ascent of rum doodle no okay so this was a book written by some dude uh in, in i think the 1950s an englishman in his uh literally in his garden shed and he wasn't a professional writer and uh it, it's all about these Englishmen who attempt to climb uh, Mount uh, Rumdoodle, this mountain called Rumdoodle. And, um, you know, they're all totally incompetent and they're all <laughs> scammers brilliant. and they're all absolutely <laughs> useless. And, of course, um, the book ends, uh, you know, with them at the top and it turns out they've climbed the, the wrong mountain. <laughs> 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 and they sort of stood there at the top of this mountain, you know, looking across at the mountain they should have climbed. And um, oh, it, it's just one of the most beautiful comic pieces of writing you'll ever read. And it's got one of the greatest scenes ever when um, the sort of the cad um, uh, bounder uh, in the group falls down a crevasse, crevice. <laughs> and then all the, all the uh, um, porters fall down the crevice as well. And they have to, uh, and all he can hear is... Uh, send down more champagne and they keep having to send and he just consumes all the champagne supplies. This sounds, this, this, this sounds a lot like uh, three men in a boat. It's exactly kind of, the same. It's yeah. exactly that same principle of uh, that from exactly the same school of humor. Yeah. But anyway, one way or another, this book is like, and this guy who wrote this book has ne had never climbed a mountain in his life. And it's become like the Bible for mountaineers. So if you ever talk to um, someone who's actually a mountaineer, you know, it's, it's the book that every mountaineer has read, you know, in the same way that, uh, you, you know, it's so so it, it did bizarrely find its audience, although I think he only ever self-published it. Yeah. So it's it's an example of a story that that confirms what you've just said, although I can 
think of plenty of others. Oh, sure, that 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 will, that will not. I mean, the, I remember buying something years ago, which was a something. It was a book called something like The Economics of Hits. But the the reality is because everyone everyone looks naturally at the at the stuff that that works and ignores the ninety nine point nine recurring percent that never finds its 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 audience. And the, so the whole the whole principle of hits is so wildly random. Uh, but everyone focuses on the stuff that that made it. Yeah, yeah, and and um, you know, it's it's there's so much luck involved. Yeah, that's that, that's often difficult to hear, isn't it? For for somebody somebody who's um, you know got some talent and trying to create something, but that but you still got to keep going, haven't you? That's that's the thing. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, all those cliches: the the harder I work, the luckier I, I get, and all that stuff. You've still got to you know, leave lots of carrots dangling from the tree and hope that, you know, some donkeys come along and bite the carrot if I can mix my metaphor <laughs> there. <laughs> but the, you know, you, you, yeah, I mean, you, you've just got to do it. And I mean, there's so many really good comedians that just nobody's heard of. And then you see some of the dross that gets on the telly and you're like, oh, fuck's sake, how did that do? But, you know, comedy's like, um, I, I did interview Douglas Carswell last week uh, probably a couple or three weeks ago, actually. And, you know, his his thing, he always goes on about cartels. Well, it's a cartel. Mm. And comedy, and, and I never thought of comedy like that, but it is. You know, it's controlled by two or three big agents, and, and uh, it's, it's, it's really hard to, to, to like, you know, if, if, if an agent is producing a TV show uh, and you are, you are potentially in that TV show, they're always going to put their own talent ahead of you. Mm. And uh, it just makes it very difficult to break through. Well, I, I went up to Edinburgh and thoroughly enjoyed your show. And another, uh, there, there, were, I, there were three I really went for. So there was uh, Libertarian Love Songs, which was excellent. Um, there was Alistair Williams, who, if people haven't, haven't heard him, his, his Burger King Brexit is... It, it, that, that also went viral, and it's very, very funny. But it, it seems like he—he's—he's he's, uh, also a vic- uh, become a victim to this, you know, apparent cartel. And the the, the third, the third, the third was Jeff Norcott, who you know I have a huge amounts of time for. He's, he's also very, very funny. But it's the it's the Alistair Williams thing, which is intriguing because his experience would seem to reinforce the point you just made about you know, there's a, there's a monopoly here. Well, you know, starting with Jeff, Jeff Jeff Norcott is a is a is a very good comic. And Jeff uh, had um, an incredible first mover advantage in that he was sort of um, the first comic. Like, you know, Jeff, Jeff's a, always been a really good, reliable club comic and really likable. And he was the first sort of com- comic to come out as Tory, if you like. Mm. And, and I mean, but Jeff's kind of Toryism, it's, it's you know, it's old school uh, I think he calls his dad Mondeo man. You know, it's mm-hmm. old school, um, you know, working class, aspirational yeah. Tory, which is like, you know, a lot of the country think along mm. the same lines. And Jeff never said anything that provocative, but he was already well established when he came out as Tory. And he did it in a, and his his early stuff was like Tory politics for left wing people. You mm. know, it was it was used to how to do it in the clubs. And I mean, he's, he's such a good comic, Jeff. I mean, he really is an excellent comic. And, you know, you don't have to, to be right of centre to like Jeff. You know, everyone likes him because he's just a good comic. And whereas Alistair came, Alistair wasn't as well established. 
And um, that Burger King routine he did, you know, went totally viral. I mean, it was a, again, it was a brilliant routine. But, you know, the reality is, is that there's way more comics competing for uh, um, slots than there are slots to give them. And you sort of think, oh, telly, there's loads of comics on the telly. But the, there's really only, um, you know, you know, Channel 4 maybe only have, you know, two or three comedy slots a day, if that. Or maybe might only be one or two. And the same goes for BBC. And, you know, you know one, some of it's got to go to Steve Fry and some of it's got to go to Jimmy Carr. And so mm. there really is very little room uh, at that particular top. And the same goes for the club circuit. There really aren't, you know, there's the comedy store, the Glee. There are very few big comedy clubs. And, um, you know, so, you know, every comedian thinks they're being given a raw deal, that they're being overlooked, that, 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 that uh, they can't understand why this or that club won't book them and has got it in for them. So I don't know in the case of Alice, like I saw him at Comedy Unleashed the other day. I thought he was brilliant. Um, I don't, and particularly young men who are, you know, lots of testosterone and very frustrated. So a lot of the, you know, they want to get on and, 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 and be stars as quickly as possible. And it, and, you know, it is, it is slightly biased in favor of, um, you know, there are, there's no shortage of white male comedians. And mm. so it does, it is an advantage to have something different about you. Uh, um, and, you know, the white male comedians don't have that. We're the sort of the, the starting point, the, you know, the, the first paint you start with before you add any mixer sort of thing. Mm. And so, you know, I wonder how much of Alistair's frustration at, and I, I, I'm being very careful of what, what I say here because I don't know the details and I'd like to actually talk about it, but I wonder how much of Alistair's frustration that he's putting down to his having the wrong views is actually his having the wrong views and how much is just genuine you know, the frustration of being a good comedian who's overlooked. Mm. And I bet it's a bit of both. But this is kind of what the internet's for, though, isn't it? So if if, if the mainstream media, I mean, the... the, the Where was the now, show in Edinburgh? Where was it? Uh, I, I, I cannot re- recall the venue. But it, it was a show or... or uh, I was, it was a pay, it was, I'm pretty sure it was a paid gig. Okay. And it was probably a, probably a 100-seater, 150-seater... Uh, and it was uh, full, wasn't it? Uh, pretty full, yeah. Oh well, he can't complain. That's pretty good for Edinburgh. But the the analogy I, the analogy I've made in relation to Brexit, for example, is that the Brexit process has been like lifting up a gigantic rock that covers everything about the British establishment and culture. And I I and I'm sure most of the country cannot believe the kind of awful stuff that's wriggling around underneath it. And it's taken the Brexit process because clearly this is a journey that's not going to finish anytime soon, to reveal just how squalid and awful much of our establishment is. Yeah, I could, could agree more. It's been, that's been the most fantastic thing. It's, it's, been, it's, it's like the curtain at the end of The Wizard of Oz, and mm. it's just revealed how much... There's so many people wearing no clothes, you know, and it's great. To, it's, it's pulled back. It's, it's a, it's, I couldn't agree more. It's one of the beautiful things about it. So, I mean, uh, we, we should... We should touch on touch on the book just before we, we we get to the your new book daylight robbery um which which in itself was was at one stage a, a show wasn't it because you I, I remember coming to see you at the i think it was the museum of comedy which is a, a routine called let's talk about tax but just just before we get to that 
just to get to, to get sort of up to up to speed on the sort of the politics. What is your your current take on the like? Well, well I suppose it's an open ended question. What's your current take on the, the the body politic now? Well, I can't help feeling a certain sense of disappointment that the Tories are not only. I mean, I think the Tories are going to win, and they're going to win by a large majority, and you know, 340, 350, 360 seats, something like that. And they, they have to get more than 315, don't they? Because mm. they have to... Otherwise, there'll be a coalition of, of Remain interests. Exactly. Interest. And we'll go have second referendum and all that. Um, you know, maybe that would be a good thing. Maybe that would be I, the I, final purge. It, it, it seems to me that the, the, the very idea of having a second referendum without having enacted the result of the first would be catastrophic for the mood uh, and the stability of the country? Um, probably. I mean, I don't know what people would do. But, you know, if we want to bring the whole system down and start again, that's the way to do it. Mm. Um, you know, because but, but, you, kind of, you kind of think that... But that, 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 that argument is akin to it was necessary to destroy the village in order to save it. Uh, yeah, basically. And so in that regard, Farage standing down, and, and he really is putting country before parties, mm. is, is a mm. good thing. But we would not be where we are were it not for him. And, and I just kind of think if he, does, if he stands down and the Tories all get elected, I know there's been a bit of a purge in the Tory party, but it's still, I can't believe the Tories will survive this. I don't want them to survive this. They don't deserve to survive this after what they've done. And, you know, if they come in with a majority... And, you know, they're not standing for conservative values. They're, cons- they're standing for more spending and more it's, intervention. It's, it's, it's crony capitalism. There's a line from Aliens, which I would wield, wield at this point, which is nuke the planet from orbits, the only way to be sure. Well, yeah. And I just think it's, it's a terrible tragedy if the Tories come out of this the winner because they don't deserve to. Is that not is that not simply a reflection of of being the lesser of two e- or lesser of three evils? Well, that's sort of the problem with British politics. Is it's it's always you know it's like choosing. It, it is because they're the lesser of two evils. But 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 you want something that you actually really feel passionately and strongly about, and you know. I, 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 I mean, I normally just draw a massive great cock on my ballot paper. <laughs> because I just think by voting, you're you're endorsing a system that's broken. And, yes. And this election yeah. comes along and you thought, this is the one time where I, may, I might actually vote for something. Mm. And then you go, well, I'm in Lewisham. Labour's going to win in Lewisham. And, um, you know, so on and so forth. So I, I think I'm just going to resort to back to the cock again but you know i might vote <laughs> but i might vote for you know brexit party on point of principle but but just just in, in the interest of political correctness other other forms of of pudenda are available for for, for artistic purposes <laughs> yeah yeah i mean you could just write spoiled but it would lack artistic integrity <laughs> so, so dominic tell us about your book um Daylight robbery. How tax shaped her past and will change her future. Well, I, I, I like. I'm an on button now, so you literally just switch me on, and I will talk until you tell me to stop. Go. Um, but this, it, as Tim says, this book was born. It started as an Edinburgh show in 2016, and I was um, convinced back in the, you know, around about the time I first met Tim, that you know we have this crony capitalist society, and if we're to save the world, 
we need to change our system of money. And all society's ills start with, with a broken system of money. And I spent many years writing books about it, writing articles about it, doing podcasts and whatever and so forth, trying to explain. We wrote a film that was very popular called um, uh, Four Horsemen that got like, I don't know, seven, eight million views on Facebook. And I really like that. I, I, I feel that, you know, I was pretty instrumental in getting, you know, because one of my strengths is, is, is putting complicated stuff making it comprehend uh, making it understandable and but i think that the the whole money narrative um is out there now people understand the how broken our system of money is and and you know the whole bitcoin thing you know even if you don't like bitcoin it has been the most it is the most fantastic educational tool because it leads you to start thinking about money and questioning money and 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 everyone goes i don't understand it and you're like well come on you've got 10 years to understand it. it's not that difficult but the so the the money narrative is out there that if we're going to save the world we need to change our system of money and a few years ago i was thinking you know in a zombie film there's always this idea of patient zero the zero patient which is the first person to have got the disease and um often the sort of the 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 you the the, the hero of the film has to get to the zero patient because the zero patient is where you find the the antidote, or if you can kill the zero patient, then the, the rest you'll kill the disease. You know, so the 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 solution to the problem of the film is the zero patient. And you know, I th- used to think that the zero patient was was money, but now I've come around to this idea that the zero patient is tax, is our system of tax. And so, if you want to um, fix society. If you fix our system of tax, everything else will follow because tax is basically control. Tax is rule. Um, you know, uh, tax is power. You know, if a king or an emperor or a government, whatever system of rule you have, if it loses its tax revenue, it loses its power. And so I started thinking from here. And so tax is sort of how you shape a society. And, you know, if you're a politician, and you really do want to fix the world then fix. Start with our system of tax. Because so many of society's ills start from there. And then I started to realize that it isn't just society today. It's all history has been shaped by tax. And, you know, every war, for example, was made possible by taxes. Um, And remember, tax doesn't always take the form of money. Often you pay your tax in labor, you pay it in kind, you pay it in produce as well as in, in actual profit. Or, or it's papered over in the form of debt, which becomes a tax burden for future generations. I define, I define debt in the book as a tax on the future. And I, def, I define uh, inflation as, as a stealth tax, taxation without legislation. They're both forms of extracting wealth um, uh, from a certain point of society and, and, and passing it to government. One of the, sorry to, sorry to interrupt, one of the, the blockbuster arguments um, that I, I came across in, in terms of the morality of, of money and the morality of, 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 of all of this stuff is, and, and you cite it in the book, if the First World War had been conducted on the basis of, well, we'll pay, we'll pay for it, uh, we, won't, we won't tax and we won't borrow, then it would, it would really have been over by Christmas because yeah. everybody would run out of money. So millions of lives and the entire history of the 20th century would have been radically changed if we'd had a sound money system for, per, per, for for prosecuting the First World War, and we didn't, 
And now, now we are where we are. But that, that's the killer argument in favour of sound money for me. Oh, my God. Like, you know, we came off the gold standard to print the money to pay for the war and income tax just went through the roof. You know, without those two uh, eventualities, yeah, as you say, the war would have been over by Christmas. We only finished paying for that war in 2015. You know, that was when the debt, our debts to America for World War I were finally paid off. <laughs> Hundred years later, oh my God. and you could also, again, as you as you as you point out in the book, my tax money, my tax money has been paying for the fucking First World War, yeah. hundred years ago. And you could also, and you could also make the point, as you do in the book, that uh, tax is also what formed the United States, which was a protest against British tax. Sure, um, uh, no taxation without representation, and um, and it was also the cause of the Civil War. Uh, people and think that war was it's fought in, over slavery. It wasn't. It was. It was. In, it was inequitable taxation that caused. Uh, it. I think you could also make a perfectly legitimate case that it's also a, a big driver behind Brexit, which is going over the the very very similar ground. Which is where we're paying all this money. What are we getting back from it? Well, the the main bones of contention: the Northern Ireland border, the customs union, the free market. They're all tax arguments. Mm. Um, and so this is you know, th- this. So I started to sort of go back through history and you realize that, you know, the very first written records we have uh, in, from ancient Mesopotamia are tax records. You know, the, we uh, tax uh, and handwriting, they actually evolve together. And um, in fact, this idea of duty to the greater collective would have probably existed in hunter-gatherer societies even before civilization. So taxation is as old as civilization itself. There has never been a civilization without taxation. And the eternal argument is on one side, tax is theft, but on the other side, tax is what you pay for a civilized society. Those are the words inscribed on the, on the IRS building in, in Washington, D.C. And so there's this never ending argument. And, and the very first, the tithe, the tithe is like the first income tax where you gave a tenth of your labor or a tenth of your produce or a tenth of your uh, profit. You'd give it to the church or to... Yeah, and, and by the way, the, uh, the distinction between church, God, king, ruler, it was always often one and the same. And it was a tithe, the tenth, because we have ten fingers on our hands. And, you know, this existed in ancient Mesopotamia. It's called Esretu, and it's common across every ancient culture. So there's, there's never been a, a, um, uh, a civilization without taxation. And behind every great event in history, there is almost always a tax story without which that event would have been very different. And I used to play a game with the audience in my 2016 show where I'd get them to shout events out from history mm. and, and I would try and then tell them the tax story behind that event. But it used to get, people started getting ridiculous and citing events that I'd never heard of. And, and so <laughs> <laughs> it got quite hard. But, but, you know, but every war, and there's this peculiar relationship between war and taxes, is that tax makes war possible. So if you want to end war, end taxes. But at the same time, war makes tax possible. Like leaders find it very hard to levy taxes in times of peace. You normally need some kind of national emergency. And then what then happens, this is the case in the 20th century, is um, like, you know, for example. An, an emergency measure becomes a permanent one, like, like QE. Yeah, an emergency measure becomes a, a permanent one. But the, the taxation never goes back to the levels that it was before the emergency mm. started. So it, mm. it, it, it makes it possible to levy the new taxes and then it stays there. And that's why government has ballooned so terribly over the 20th century. It's the two world wars that did it because they gave the, um, 
you, you know, gave the excuse. It, it, American, ordinary Americans didn't pay income tax until 1942. That, 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 is, ama- that is an amazing fact. Yeah. And it was the, the Revenue Act of 1942. And there was this song. They, they, there was a huge propaganda effort to make ele- uh, Americans um, uh, uh, celebrate their taxes. And there was a video they made with Donald Duck as the taxpayer. And then and Irving Berlin wrote this song called I Paid My in- Income Tax Today, which was sung by Gene Autry. And it contains, it's, it's like the lyrics, you know, this, this is supposed to be a happy song, but the lyric goes, a thousand planes to bomb Berlin They'll all be paid for, and I chipped in, you know. And when was ever the link between tax and war? And there's a, a see those bombers in the sky. Rockefeller, Rockefeller paid to build them. So did I, you know. Wow. It's it's terrifying, and and yet this was like all over the airwaves. It was like 17 million fuck offs <laughs> at the uh, at the uh, at the time. So so yeah. So that's the central theory of the book. And there are just so many amazing stories about tax from the French Revolution to the Peasants' Revolt, which is the best story ever. Or, you know, taxes in ancient Greece were voluntary. uh, You know, that was like probably one of the most enlightened societies in history. How we evolved to be this higher tax state that we are today. And then I spend the last sort of third of the book looking at taxes in the future and how governments are going to levy taxes. And that's, um, you know, all that futuristic I want to be call myself a futurologist because if ever there is a bullshit job, it's being a futurologist. But you, 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 you have to speculate. But I, I just think our tax systems are built for a physical um, economy, and the 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 nature of the economy. We're now in a in a digital economy. You know, um, the 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 all the economic growth is in what we what I call the intangible economy, and it's in. Google and Amazon and Silicon Valley and all and Facebook and all these kind of companies, extraordinary valuations. And more and more workers are working in the digital economy. They're more working remotely. And yet governments haven't found a way to properly tax the intangible economy yet. And so that's the big challenge that they're going to have in the years ahead. Mic drop. Difficult to follow that. The, well, I, I'll just carry on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's... Um, you know, look at how they struggle to tax, to, uh, tax. You know, you know, all the Starbucks shops. None of the Starbucks shops make money because they have to pay um, copyright or what's it called uh, uh, to, to use the Starbucks brand. And the yeah. Starbucks brand is is located in low tax jurisdiction somewhere, Holland, I think it is. And you know, so Starbucks basically defends itself against tax. When you've got one company that pays no tax and another company that pays high taxes and it's obvious which company is going to succeed because their their profit models totally different um there, there are there are a few things that i think most people would anyone except an a sort of an anarcho libertarian would, would accept we we need to pay for things like street lighting arguably defensive not necessarily a an aggressive uh expansionist military uh we had a, a guest on um some while ago john hearn economist john hearn and he he put out a very interesting presentation uh, that points out in in passing that although we think we've got something like a choice between the major political parties, the reality is that all of them are spending so much now that they're all basically boxed into this tiny little area, very nearly fifty percent, accounting for fifty percent of GDP on government spending. So the the difference between the major parties is not as as as, as clear water as you might think. But so uh, John John's suggestion is that the the appropriate or the preferred 
let's say, tax burden ought to be closer to maybe 20%, 25% of GDP. Do you have a figure in mind? Do you have a, a target, if at all? I mean, you know, I couldn't, I agree with everything that you just said or that John said there. And, and you know, we, we sort of, the, technically, the tax burden in the UK, I think it's like 46%, something mm. like that. And it's not quite as bad as France, but it's moving in that direction. It's not as bad as France, which is almost at 60%, but they've got the gilet jaune, you know, Mm, and and you wonder what that's all about. And it's fuel taxes, but the, the, um, and America's lower and we're higher, but it's 40 to 60% Mm. in the developed world. But it, but but as you say, I think in the book at the start of the, you know, in 1910, it was 10%. Yeah. Before, oh, before the war, before the war. And what's also interesting is, is that even though the tax burden has dramatically increased, and the Soviet Union was 75%. Mm. So, you know, we're not, we're not and, and, and the, the great example is Hong Kong, which never went above 14%. And it was the economic success story of the second and a half of the 20th century, and all the other Asian nations copied it. And that's how we got the Asian tiger. It was built on low taxes, individual responsibility. Like, you know, ideally... We'd go back to 15%, something like that, 20%. But, you know, if you offered me 20%, I'd bite your hand off. Yeah. And how, how realistic do you think that that is? I mean, let's try, 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 and, be, try and be optimistic, but, but measuredly optimistic. I just don't see how it happens because, mm. you, you know, unless there's some kind of revolution or what happens is nation states fall apart. Mm. I th- I, you know, I, I write towards the end, I, I'm not entirely sure nation states as we know them today will exist in 100 years' time. Mm. That, you know, some will, of course, but uh, others won't. Um, And, you know, there'd be a lot more fragmentation. And one of my dreams is to become the first president of the independent nation of Kerno, Kerno being um, uh, the old word for Cornwall. And Mm. when we set up our independent nation of Kerno and we break away from UK UK tax law, um, you know, we can set taxes at 20 percent. But while government has taken on all these obligations and you're looking at this general election now, they're all just competing to offer you stuff. Um, and it, all these obligations have got to be paid for and they'll be paid for by our descendants. But do you not do you not do you not think that the British people can see through this yes. sort of grotesque bidding process, which has become I mean, in, I, I never really got much into politics until Brexit. For some reason, Brexit was the the sort of defining uh, you know, seminal experience that that made me think a lot more about politics, and as I'm sure I'm, I speak for many people. I agree. I agree with you, Tim. I think I, I just sit there and I wonder, I'm, like stuff I can see. It's just like, I'm sure everyone else can see it as well. And you know, what's what's what I find interesting is is like we actually spend less on defence than we used to when tax was at ten percent um, on a proportional basis, on a relative basis. We actually spend less on um, social housing. Now, I'm not a champion of social housing, but we spend more. The money just goes on shit that governments never spent money on before. Doesn't it just go and on on servicing the debt? Because obviously, how can... I think the, um, the amount that is spent servicing the debt is half the education budget. But, you know, since where, why do we need government to provide education? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, re- it's really interesting because one of the guys we had on probably two, three months ago, uh, Guido Hulsman. I don't know if you know Guido. He's a, an economics professor in France, German, German uh, gentleman. And he's written a book that I would recommend to anybody, which is called The Ethics of Money Production. Now, that sounds like a slightly sort of you know, intimidating title. It took me two years to pluck up the courage to read it when someone gave me a copy. But it's, it's, it's superb. Yeah, um, I've got it, actually. 
And the 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 most amazing thing I think Guido said in the the, the hour we we spent talking to him was when we asked him, and Paul, you may recall this, when we asked him if you could change the system, what would you do? And I think that I think his first response was get government out of the education business. Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. expecting a monetary exactly. related answer, so and, he, and he and he went he went straight to education. Yeah, I mean the shit they're being told at school. And every, you know, what, what kids are taught becomes a, de- a political debating point that's determined by who, which pressure groups are the most aggressive. And that's why you get all the kids being taught this stupid LGBT, whatever the uh, um, acronym you know, is. What a, yeah, you know, all this stupid stuff when they're five years old, you know, and, and trying to normalize transsexuality and all this kind of stuff to a four-year-old. You're like, please, give me a break. What? On on the topic of just the sort of the the electoral pledges, I came across a, a superb quote from H.L. Um, Mencken, the American uh, writer, who said, "The state, or to make the matter more concrete, the government consists of a gang of men exactly like you and me. They have taking one with another no special talent for the business of government. They have only a talent for getting and holding office. Their principal device to that end is to search out groups who pant and pine for something they can't get and to promise to give it to them. Nine times out of ten, that promise is worth nothing." The 10th time it is made good by looting A to satisfy B. In other words, government is a broker in pillage and every election is a sort of advance auction sale of stolen goods. Oh, beautiful. A beautiful, beautiful. Now, you see, I agree with all that. But in my book, I don't go full on. I try to take a more measured approach and just tell stories and not... and not. Um, go down the taxes theft government's just you know the government takes money from you to provide protection that's what the mafia does what's the difference you know i i think all those thoughts are pretty clear but i just in order to give the book wider appeal Mm. i've been slightly more softly softly um i wanted to go in more hardcore but i mean you know it's penguin but it's amazing like the the weird consequences that that taxes have like I called the book Daylight Robbery because um, the expression daylight robbery comes from the window tax um, um. when we were taxed on windows and when they were debating. The, now, the window tax was introduced really uh, um, when we had the glorious revolution in 1688 in, in England. Uh, we paid what were, what were called half taxes, uh, which was a tax. Um, uh, uh, you paid it twice a year and it was a shilling for each fireplace you had in your home. And so tax inspectors would demand entry into people's homes to count the number of fireplaces they had. And um, this was considered a, you know, a gross violation of the Englishman's sacred privacy. It was a bit like the TV license inspector coming around. And the tax was really, really hated. But it was the biggest single source of government revenue at the time. And so we had these new monarchs, William and Mary, uh, who'd uh, overthrown James II, and there'd been it was called the Bloodless Revolution, although it wasn't so Gl- bloodless. Glorious, glorious revolution. Glorious revolution, bloodless revolution, um, uh, uh, and I think um, it, it had various names, but yeah, the Glorious Revolution. And the first thing they did, we had the English Bill of Rights, and one of the first things they did was repeal hearth taxes, and they did it to basically ingratiate the new monarchs with the people and um so that the their majesty's goodliness there was some um thing that was said i think this is a quote from the bill of rights but so that their majesty's goodliness could be felt in every hearth and fireplace throughout the kingdom but the problem was he didn't have anything to replace the revenue with and so suddenly 
in the first um, years of reign, he found himself, he, there was, he had wars in Ireland to fight, wars in, on the continent. It was the Eight Years' War, I think it was. And, you know, uh, he had to pay for the Navy. And it was like, how are we going to pay for all this? We don't have the money. And um, so they had this idea of a window tax. And the beauty of a window tax is that the tax assessor didn't have to come into people's homes to collect the tax. There was no um, uh, invasion of privacy. Um, you could just walk past somebody's house and count the number of windows that they had. And also, the idea was if you had more windows in, the, in your house, you were likely to be more rich. So it was, it was considered a, you know, a fair tax. And it was, they had the infrastructure in place from the hearth tax to collect it. And so they introduced the window tax and the window tax basically levied, replaced um, the hearth tax. But and it worked for a bit. But then there were all sorts of weird unintended consequences. Like so, for example, um, there were notches. So if you had like five win below five windows, you paid one tax and then above five to 12 windows, you paid another tax and then 13. So architecture for the next hundred years was informed by where the notches were. That's, you know, defined how many buildings people would have. And houses were built with the windows blocked up to give owners the option of knocking through and and paying the tax if they wanted to. And um, this is like this is like something out of Jonathan Swift. Yeah, I mean, well, it is. It is exactly what it is. And and windows like became like a huge status symbol. And there's a whole passage in Pride and Prejudice where one of the characters is marveling at this house because it had so many windows and that shows how rich he must have been. And, but the, the weird thing was, is that the tax fell on the landlord. It didn't fall on the tenant. So the reaction of landlords was simply just to block up all the windows. And so the unintended consequence of the tax was that it made people ill. And particularly in the Industrial Revolution, as more and more people moved into cities, all the typhus and the cholera and um, all the various diseases that there were, were made worse by the damped, cramped, windowless dwellings. And remember, this is a time before electric lighting, before even gas and oil lighting. We used rush lights in those days. So for people to block up their windows was no small sacrifice and just live in total darkness. I mean, what kind of sacrifice was that? And... There was all sorts of medical reports that showed that this tax made people ill. And yet, um, government refused to get rid of it. And, you know, songs were sung, pamphlets were handed out. Charles Dickens wrote articles about it. And there was all sorts of medical reports were shown. And just government would not get rid of this tax for decades. Um, they, they held on to it. And, and it was when, it, when the motion was finally put before Parliament to get rid of it, um, the MPs were crying daylight robbery, daylight robbery. And that's where the expression comes from. And even then, the first motion didn't get through. And bizarrely, the only reason, one of the only reasons that they were able to eventually get it through, I think 1856 or something it was got rid of, was that income tax had been brought back a few years earlier. Um, and they used income tax to get rid of loads and loads of petty taxes. Uh, Robert Peel got rid of something like 500 different taxes um, and replaced it with one single income tax. And again, income tax was only payable for, for richer people. And it was only supposed to be temporary. But it was window tax that enabled um, government to get rid of uh, income tax, enabled government to get rid of window tax. But in the sort of evolution of the window tax, you can see the sort of typical life cycle of a tax. It was enacted at a time of need. Um, usually to fund some kind of emergency. It was presented as temporary, but it became permanent. It, um, the le levels payable were low at first, but crept up over time. And then it affected people 
it had all these sort of bizarre uh, and unexpected and unintended consequences, the most pernicious of which was that, as I say, it made people ill. But even with this, government is still slow and reluctant to get rid of it. And it takes, you know, it takes a huge campaign, often, you know, a revolt or a revolution of some kind to get rid of the tax. Every revolution in history, by the way, has been some kind of rising up against some kind of economic in, um, injustice perpetrated by the tax system. So, yeah, so that's the sort of that's why I called it daylight robbery. And that's that's um, that's the typical life cycle of a tax. You're a, you're ahead of the curve in spotting Bitcoin and the blockchain. How do you think that uh, could affect how taxes are collected? Do you think that the governments will introduce their own for that reason? Well, um, one of the things that made me, I went and did a talk about the book at the IEA, the Economic Institute of Economic Affairs, which is a think tank uh, in Westminster, quite influential, certainly amongst uh, the Conservative Party. One of the things they did is they bought two boxes of the um, book and then made me sign them. And it, it would say, for Javid, uh, with best wishes, Dominic Frisbee. Mm -hmm. Next one, uh, for Jacob, with best wishes, mm -hmm. Dominic Frisbee. Next one, for Boris, with best wishes, Dominic Frisbee. And they bought boxes of this book to give out to MPs as their Christmas present. Mm -hmm. And so everyone in the government is going to have a, <laughs> a copy of my book. And so, and you know, Liz Truss loves it, Trade yeah. Secretary. And so hopefully, you know, people will, MPs will read it and they'll go, actually, do you know what? Um, we need, we really need to discuss tax and discuss, you know, why we tax income so heavily and we don't tax assets at all. And then we look at our society, which is totally geared around asset ownership and, you know, uh, all, all these thoughts need to be discussed. And, you know, this weird shit like HMRC taxes are only, um, they're actually technically the property of the crown although only Parliament may deem how they're spent. And that's why it's called Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs. Um, and HMRC is not directly accountable to anyone in Parliament. It's answerable to the Queen. And this is a constitutional thing that goes all the way back to, that, to the Glorious Revolution and the English Bill of Rights and, and, and the English Civil War that preceded it. But um, uh, really... Um, you know, that's just a basic constitutional thing that needs sorting out. And I just think MPs are so, like, swallowed up with the day-to-day -day arguments and this and that, that they never look at the bigger picture of a basic bit of constitutional reform that needs to happen. And, you know, you know what a bloated, incompetent organisation HMRC is, and that's because it doesn't have to report to anyone. You, you make a particularly interesting suggestion about property in the book, something called the location usage tax. Do you want to just briefly touch on that? Yeah, I mean, that's my big solution. And, and it's the old Henry George land value tax thing. But I'd, I'm reluctant to call it land value tax, because as soon as you mention land value tax, farmers always live in that absolute horror that you're going to tax them, which is not what, a, what I, would, what I would plan is. But the idea is, is that, that this solves numerous problems. But the idea is, like, you do need some taxes. The, the idea, I mean, we all love an idea that nobody pays any taxes, but you do need taxes of some kind. And like I say, if we could be at 15% or something, then great. And Hong Kong um, what it great, you know, had, had a land value tax. It taxed land. And the idea is, is that the land belongs to the land in its unimproved state belongs to everyone. Nobody made the land. Nature gave it to us. Not just the land, but the, the airspace, the, the bandwidth, all these things. They, they are 
owned by everyone who lives in the country. And if you want exclusive rights to a plot of land, uh, uh, you know, the, the land that your house is on, and you want nobody else to um, uh, have uh, uh, um, access to that land, then you have to pay a fee to the community to give you sole access. What you then do with that land, you know, if you build a house on it and that house is a beautiful house and it's worth fortunes, that's great. That's all yours to keep. You took the risk. You you spent the money. You bought the house. That the, the, the house is there because of your endeavor. But the land was always there. And so you have to assess the unimproved rental. You have to assess the rental value of land in its unimproved state. And obviously, you know, prime city center real estate is going to have a very high uh, rental value and farmland in the country is going to have uh, you know virtually zero rental value because you know it's not got any planning permission it's it's just got low rental value and so say um you had two plots in the same street and one of them um had been developed and one of them haven't hadn't they would both still have the same rental value and and it, it stops all sorts of things it stops this practice of land banking where people just sit on land and wait for its value to appreciate. It forces people to put it to good use. You know, let's say, you know, they build a really good station at the end of my road. And so suddenly the value of my house doubles because everyone wants to live close to the station. Well, I haven't actually done anything. And, and um, that's the needs of the community have, have, have made that happen. And so that sort of appreciation should be shared. And the, the net result was, is that prime city center real estate would pay um, high land location usage tax because it belongs because you know it's the needs of the community that have pushed the high city center real estate to such high values and remote farmland will pay very little it also solves the problem of taxing the intangible economy and by the way it's not just um you know google and facebook that it's hard to collect tax from more and more workers are becoming freelancers as well. By 2030, half of the workforce is going to be freelance. And the old, easily taxable relationship between employer and employee is going to be much harder to collect taxes from freelancers, particularly if they work in the digital economy and are paid in cryptocurrency and, 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 and work in numerous jurisdictions. Tax is going to get much harder to collect. Income taxes are going to get harder to collect at all as well. But the beauty of this tax is, you know, if Google occupies all of King's Cross and Google's profits, you know, intellectual property is located in Bermuda or wherever it is. And so Google avoids paying taxes. Well, you can say to Google, well, no, you're occupying all this prime city center real estate. And if you want exclusive rights to that real estate, and it's great what you've done and all the buildings that you've built, but if you want exclusive rights to that real estate, or you want to put your computer servers here, or you want to put your, um, you know, use this bandwidth or whatever it is, you pay a, a fee to the community based on the rental value of that of that thing, and so that way, it, it you know it's an impossible tax to avoid because everyone can see the land and they can see who's using it, and so I the the, the basic premise of the book is uh, of the argument is tax land, don't tax labour. Another mic drop moment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So so it could be that your book is actually a self-fulfilling prophecy when people read it and go, oh, that's a really great idea and bring it into into force. I hope so. I mean, the, the land value tax argument has been around for ages. I'm by no means the first person to make it. Um, and the problem is, as I say, it needs an emergency 
to get a tax through. And I don't believe, you know, they tried to bring land value. Mansion tax was a sort of bastardized form of the land value tax. And it's a, it's a, you can't, it, it's, it, it has to replace other taxes. It can't be in addition to other taxes. And I believe they'll introduce it in some bastardized form in addition to other taxes. And that's what we don't want. It should replace other taxes. Talking of um, being ahead of the curves, you, you think that privacy is going to be the next big thing. And yeah. I'm excited by that idea. And I th- increasingly we're seeing that to be the case. But, but tell, us, tell us your thoughts on that. Well, I, I mean, I'm CEO of a, of a privacy tech investment company, so I'm, I am pushing the privacy narrative a bit. Do you want to tell us about the company? No, no not really. <laughs> well, I can do. It's, it's, it's a company called Cypherpunk Holdings, and it's listed on the um, Canadian Secur- Securities Exchange. It's just a small cap company in Canada, but it's p- pretty exciting. It's trading at below its NAV at the moment. So if anyone wants to buy shares, you're getting them at a discount. Um, um, I've only just become CEO. and But we're investing. We've invested some money in Bitcoin. We've invested in these privacy wallets. Uh, but we're looking at things like VPNs, um, conference call providers, all these different means, you know, messaging apps, uh, all these different means to protect your privacy. And, you know, with everything that's gone on with Facebook and how Facebook markets stuff at you. And, you know, the other day, this was last winter, I remember having a conversation. I was going skiing. I was having a conversation with my daughter on the landing. And I said, I'm going skiing. Should I bring my hiking boots or should I bring my Timberland boots? And my daughter said, bring your Timberland boots. And I said, oh, yeah, but they look a bit old and tatty. I think I'll bring my hiking boots. Anyway, I get into bed half an hour later and I'm playing on my phone and Amazon's trying to sell me Timberland boots. And I'm like, how did it know that? Mm. And so all these, you know, this, and, and that's a pretty benign um, use of, you know, that's a pretty, benign, that's just like the butcher, you know, you go to your butcher and the butcher knows that you like a roast chicken on a Sunday. And so he offers you, you know, when you're getting your Sunday lunch, you know, he says, oh, hello, Mr. Frisbee, shall we give you one of your roast chickens? It, that's, that's kind of that. That's a benign use. But you, we don't know what, how, like if I supply we have a relationship with, let's say you have a relationship with your lawyer or you have a relationship with your lover or you have a relationship with your accountant or you have a relationship with your taxi driver. And we have different relationships with different people. And stuff you tell your lover, you might not tell your lawyer. And stuff you tell your lawyer, you might not tell your accountant. And stuff you tell your accountant, you might not tell your taxi driver. We know we have different, um, each relationship has a different parameter. But the difference with, with all the use of data that's going on online is that your data is being used for purposes beyond which it was supplied. Mm. And that's, that's a fundamental abuse. Now, obviously, you know, um, American general elections have successively been won by the political party that best used data. Um, and, and you can say, well, they were clever. But there was also, you know, there was a really funny one with Donald Trump. They found that um, um, American, Americans who owned cars made in America were more likely to vote for Donald Trump than people who owned foreign cars. And so they targeted people who hadn't, they found people who hadn't voted, found out what kind of car they owned, and then targeted them with Facebook ads, according to what their profile was. And, and that was enough to determine the swing states of um, whatever it was, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. But yes, yeah, so there, but there is this, this sort of core abuse where your data is being used for purposes beyond which it was supplied. And I just think this whole argument of privacy, what is yours, what isn't yours, 
um, it's, it's just going to be a growing argument in the years ahead. And so uh, that's why we set up this company to sort of um, help enhance people's potential privacy. I don't know if you've seen a, you see a program called BBC Click. Uh, it's a, a technology program and it's, I think it's excellent. For, for, for some reason, if it's a Saturday, whatever time of day or night, you turn on the, turn on the BBC and Click is showing. I don't know how that happens. It's, it's some kind of magical force that takes over the television. One of their um, one of their episodes was, I think, actually maybe went ran into two, but definitely touched upon this and was fascinating. So I, I really think you're onto something with that. So you know, I'd be very interested to see how the balance is between people taking back the right to their data and their understanding of how much of their lives are actually being held on servers and, and, and judged by algorithms and, and how much protection we actually need from, say, terrorism and, and how much of this has to be out. Uh, that will always be an argument, won't it? That, that Yeah, I mean, it's going to be used to bring it back to daylight robbery. This information you have will be shared with governments and it will be used to collect taxes. Governments already do stuff like they look at your Facebook and stuff if they don't think you're paying the wrong taxes and they look at your Facebook and they see you've been, you know, pictures of you drinking champagne in Cannes. They'll go, <laughs> hang on a minute, this, this bloke is, uh, uh, isn't paying the right level of tax. But yeah, so it will be, that data will be used. But like, take, like, this is a one, like, um, on, in Gmail, like sometimes, let's say you've really fallen out with somebody. Let's say you know, I've fallen out with somebody and, and they've really pissed me off. And so I write a really angry email. And then I decide, then I think, actually, do you know what? I better not send that email. So you don't send it and it just sits there in your drafts. And so Gmail, not only does it know everything you do say, and everything, it knows stuff that you think, but then you still decide not to send. Do you see what I mean? Yes, so it even, yes, it even knows what you don't say. Yes, yes. I, I, and and that's, that's an argument that I wanted to speak to uh, Rory Sutherland about because we, we, he was talking about, you know, going into Walmart and the difference between buying something from Walmart and buying something on Amazon. And actually, after, we ha after he was on the podcast, I thought about it and I realised that Amazon also knows what I put, I clicked on, looked at what you've, but, what you've looked at, but not bought, but not bought. And therefore yeah. it knows what I'm browsing around. Whereas Walmart could never know that I've picked up something and put it back down again. It just can't know that. So, so know. They, they have a tremendous advantage. Sure. And they also know, like it knows what YouTube videos you've been watching. It knows what, uh, who you've been talking to, you know, just, and I, I sort of think if it's only used to sell you stuff, it's not the end of the world, but, you know that that information in the wrong hands is very dangerous. Well, we had um, we had um, Shane McAvoy on, who's a an expert in marketing, marketing and digital marketing, and he was telling us a story about how. Oh, and I, I, I haven't got a link to it, so I, I I don't know. This is just anecdotal, but he was saying that there was a woman in America who slipped over in a supermarket, and. They looked at her purchase records and found that she bought a lot of alcohol and managed that the supermarket managed to get out of paying her a lot of money or maybe anything at all because they could see she drank a lot and therefore there was a good chance that she was drunk. Now, if that sort of stuff's going to happen. Yeah. Um, well, that's that, that's just, that that to me just shows you what 
utter bastards lawyers are. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, there's there's no doubt about that. Um, but yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a classic case. You get some clever lawyer whose only motivation is to get the best possible result for his client, and they will resort to those kind of tactics. Yeah. But I, I thought that was that's utterly sort of to, to be able to go through your your credit card purchases. I mean, how can you even prove that that was that was for her? It might have been for a, a you know alcoholic husband for all we know. Yeah. So it's it's amazing how it all ties in together. So you've got the privacy, you've got the Bitcoin, the blockchain, the tax. It's all a theme. W- what's next for you? Um, at the moment, I'm I'm uh, just pimping the book. I'm yeah. selling the book as much as possible. What what book's that, um, that Dominic? Dominic. <laughs> it's called Daylight Robbery: How Tax Shaped Our Past and Will Shape and Will Change the Future. And it's published by Penguin. And um, if you go on my website, you can buy a, a signed hardback oh, edition. I'm, I'm going to do that. I was uh, about to buy it from Amazon, but if I can get one from your website, which is DominicFrisbee.com. Yeah, but you can get. I'll give you a signed one, but but. This this just this, talk, talk about. This, let me just moan about Amazon for a sec. Um, <laughs> Amazon sells the book. You can buy the hard cap, the hardback first edition on Amazon for thirteen quid. Okay. Now the manufacturer's recommended retail price is twenty quid, yeah. and so Penguin do a thing where they sell to their authors a fifty percent discount. So it costs me ten quid to buy the book. Now, if I then want to send it out to you in the UK, it costs me £3.55 postage. Bloody hell. So it costs me £13.55 before I've made a penny. And I've got now, all the hassle of dealing you, with the thing. And if Amazon you buy something on 30- Amazon over 10 quid, the postage is free if you choose the the delayed the delivery option. Yeah. Well, so how, how on earth are they doing it? I don't know. But like uh, Amazon... You can get something same day from Amazon. You can get same day. If you're on Prime, you get it same day for free. It's, it's phenomenal. So Amazon are undercutting me, the author. Like I wrote the book <laughs> and they're undercutting me. Yeah, that's you outrageous. Know, and it, it's not just that they're undercutting. I mean, but if, if they, I guess they pay a tenner a copy and, and, and so they probably make three quid a copy or whatever and they've got the infrastructure and that's good enough for them. But like, you know, the it's 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 kind of amazing. We have bookshops at all, isn't it? Really, I don't. I I don't know. I mean, I sell it for twenty. Um, I sell it for the retail price, twenty quid plus the postage. But um, but at least uh, the one thing I can offer that Amazon can't offer is my signature. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'll get it from you for sure. Well, and you, and you, and you've, you've narrated it as well. So you've yeah, got the, the audio book. Yeah, I'm really the audio book is like is shit hot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, to, we did a little. Do you yeah. think you could do a song about it as well? About tax? Yeah, I should do really, shouldn't I? That would be good. Talk to that. Yeah, you've done one on debt. You've done one. On, you had debt bomb. You heard it here first. There's, there's 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 several songs I'm working on at the moment. One is, and one of them I'm pleased with the chorus. The chorus goes, "I am a white man and I'm sorry." <laughs> <laughs> So uh, so that's going to be good when that one comes out. Fantastic. We can't wait for that. Um, Dominic, I think we've probably taken too much of your time as it is, but it's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, uh, my pleasure, and thanks for having me. Was was Tim, was there anything else you wanted to cover? Or, or... Uh, me- no, let's go straight to Media Picks if we have a time. 
Is that okay with you, Dominic? Sure. I don't know what media picks is. Well, we we like to share things that we think are either fantastic or terrible. And what's come out of this has been, there's been some brilliant book suggestions, some fantastic film suggestions, like stuff. And there's a load of things that you've already said that I'm going to be looking at, of course, um, you know, through this podcast. But we like to sort of try and find something that we either want to share or or avoid. Um, Tim, why don't you go with yours? I'll go first. So firstly, I should give Paul credit for uh, alerting me to the worst film ever made, which is Run for Your Wife, uh, the uh, film adaptation of a Ray 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 Cooney, Cooney farce. Cooney I saw farce. it with Richard Bryars um, in about 1980. In fact, Run for Your Wife was uh, what beat my dad's play. There's a girl in my suit. Oh, really? The, the longest running comedy in the West End. Oh, really. Well, yeah. the, I dare say the play may be worth watching. The no, film is terrible. But, but the film is is beyond parody. It's almost beyond words. It's it's truly awful. Now, that was the worst film I've ever seen. In clo- following close in its wake is the film I saw recently called Little Monsters, which is an Australian comedy horror. Now, I've been discussing the 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 quite niche comedy horror genre with Paul, and I think we both agree. It's a it's a difficult trick to pull off, and boy does does this film confirm that in spades. So the only good thing about it is is the the female lead is a lady called Lupita Nyong'o who's excellent, but the film itself, the the premise alone, how how it ever got made is is beyond is beyond me. So basically, you've got a a, a crappy musician um, teams. Well, this is the the synopsis from IMDb teams up with a teacher and a kids show personality to protect young children from a sudden outbreak of zombies. And it's a zombie invasion film with a class of very cute kids, very young children. Uh, and they're, they're, I, I, there's a military... Ba- I, I, I haven't even got the energy to complete the, the synopsis of the film. It's so awful. <laughs> suffice, suffice to say, it's Australian. It's horrifyingly unfunny. And let's just leave it at that. But it's on, it's on Sky at the moment. Just avoid it like the plague. Okay, what's the best comedy horror film of all time? Um, or, that's or a really, name me two or three. Really I, I, I'd say Shaun of the Dead. Shaun of the Dead, I would say, is a contender. Lake Placid, for me, is definitely a contender. And Tremors is definitely a contender. Um, are there any others out there? Th- those, those, would be, those would be in my top five. Lake Placid is, is a much overlooked, lovely, it's a masterpiece. It's only about 80 minutes long. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll check those out. Oh, and arachnophobia. Arachnophobia also works. Um, oh, okay. So, so my one is um, is a documentary that I saw on Netflix. It's called The Game Changers, and everybody's interested in diet. You know, there's a lot of celebrities and people who are switching to a yeah. vegan diet, and we don't really know what the hell to eat anymore, do we? Because there's so many people saying keto. Somebody people are saying, you know, uh, ve- vegan and this is an amazing documentary that when you watch it, you'll want to immediately go to a plant-based diet. And it almost comes across as too much of an advert. And I don't know, there's a subtle line that I think they cross where it just comes, came across too much like an advert. Now, if it didn't have people like Arnold Schwarzenegger in, in it, um, you, you almost want to dismiss it. But it's it within it, it's got such compelling arguments for switching to a plant-based diet that I can just imagine people watching it and immediately going, wow, I can't believe it. I'm never going to eat meat again. That's it. Um, So, of course, in the spirit of understanding 
such a major change in your life. I did a bit of research and I found a an article that, that basically technically goes through everything that they talk about and refutes the arguments the other way. So for anyone who's watched it and then suddenly says, oh my God, that's, that's it, I would suggest I'll link to both the film and the counter arguments, if you like, so you can make a what I would consider to be a proper informed decision. Like eating more plant-based foods, I think is a great idea, but just solely plant-based foods, from what I understand, and meat is what increased the brain capacity of human beings beyond, you know, other animals. When we started eating meat, that accelerated it. Now that And and sorry, and, and the introduction of fire, which enabled us to make the consumption of meat e- more easy yeah. and uh, efficient. So such a basic uh to removing such a basic thing from our diet. Now I can understand on humanitarian well, from saving the animals point of view, yeah, I can understand why people might want to be vegan or from a religious point of view, that that's one thing. But if 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 God didn't mean us to eat animals, He wouldn't have made them so delicious. If you look at the animal kingdom and how it works, you know it's sadly it's part of life. So um, that that that's it really. So I I just thought it, when I saw it, it was like one of those you know game changing as it says moments, especially when Arnold Schwarzenegger says, "This is." This is how I live now, and I, and I, you know, it it tastes even better, and 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 that's so compelling. But with something like that, you've got to, you know, do what Dominic's done with with research, and you know, endless research is where you find the answers, and and I think it's really important to to look at the counter arguments to it. Okay, and shall I? Do you want me to recommend one? If you could, that would be brilliant. Okay. Well, the last book I read uh, was called. Um, now, if you write a fantasy book, I, I read uh, some Twitter feed about the the tropes of fantasy books. And uh, if you want to write a really good fantasy book, you've got to have sword in the title. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, and and then and then um, uh, and then if you don't have sword in the title, you should either have king or lord or tits. The, no, not tits. No, if you for fantasy, they, they've got to have tits in the book, but but sword or lord. <laughs> Anyway, so this book I'm, and I stress I'm recommending this book. This book is called Sword of Kings. Uh-huh. And, it's, and it's by Bernard Cornwall. And it's the latest in his Last Kingdom series, which is all set in the Dark Ages about um, King Alfred the Great. And it's the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. 10, 11. It's, the, I think, the 12th or the 13th in the series. And I've read every single one. And Bernard Cornwall is the best writer ever. And his Last Kingdom series is just great. And so if you haven't read it, start reading. Um, and he, he's just such a good, if it's, it, you know, it's historical drama. It's a bit naff. You sort of laugh. Oh, I'm reading Bernard Cornwall. Ha, ha, ha. But, you know, he, he's the one writer who I'll reach for Bernard Cornwall before I reach for my iPhone. Oh, wow. That's a, that is a recommendation. Fantastic. When, when I when I came to see you at the uh, the Museum of Comedy, Dominic, there was there was one coming attraction that that sort of piqued my interest, which is uh, uh, a show called Lord of the Game of the Ring of Thrones. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're um, yeah. Thrones is another one to have in the title. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> I I mean I love. I mean, this, uh, there's a there's a sort of crossover between fantasy and all that dark age stuff because it's all 
it's all born out of that same kind of mythology, you know, but, but I just, I love a good uh, bit of myth. I love a good fantasy book. Have you read the hit, the hero with a, a thousand faces? No. Oh, that's, that's the classic storytelling book. So, uh, Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, he, he was, uh, he heavily influenced um, George Lucas with his writing of Star Wars. Apparently all the story, all this, basically the premise of it is all stories are the same. So he's, he's kind of gone back in history, different cultures everywhere. And he sees the same, the same story being told with just different, different faces as it suggests. It's, it's fascinating. Uh, I'd like to read that. Yeah, I'll put, I'll put a link to that also on the. Um... If, you, if you if you like a real fantasy uh, fantasy adventure, you could always try Deutsche Bank's latest annual report. Da da tush here all day. And on that bombshell, yeah. as we say, look, Dominic, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Best of luck with the book, and if you do write that song, please come back on the show, and we'd like we'd love to have you back on anyway. Okay, and you know if you want to like top and tail. The, this program with any of my songs please just go ahead you have my permission that's very that's kind awesome. of you that's thank you awesome. so much thank you so much brilliant alright well, take care how, 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 how can we find it if people want to get in touch Dominic Twitter Twitter, Dominic Frisbee, Twitter at Dominic Frisbee or DominicFrisbee.com wonderful cool. wonderful stuff thank you Dominic take care enjoy right. your day cheers cheers bye thanks, thanks very much Dominic appreciate it bye bye thank you so much for listening we really appreciate it Thank you to Tim. Thank you for all the lovely reviews that we've got on iTunes. We really appreciate it. And on Twitter as well, and also on YouTube. So have a fantastic couple of weeks, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.